Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a physician and the author of the memoir, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. He currently practices as a primary care physician in Boston and teaches at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, Dr. Grinspoon shares his recovery story after facing an addiction to prescription painkillers. We talk about some of the issues with current addiction therapy and rehab programs and how we might be able to improve the experience while also reducing dependency on opiates by using cannabis and incorporating cannabis and other plant-based medicines into addiction therapy and treatment. So Dr. Grinson, you are a physician, but you've also been very forthcoming about your own personal journey with opiate addiction in your book, Free Refills. So how do you begin to tell your story as a physician, but also as a human in recovery? Well, you know, physicians are human. (laughs) That's the point I try to make. It's such a taboo subject, physicians and addiction. And, you know, physicians have a higher rate of addiction than the general population. We have such access to medications and we have such high stress and burnout or I guess now they're calling it moral injury because it's more of a systemic problem than an individual problem. And if you mix together the perfect storm of access and stress, you get an epidemic of addiction. And the problem is when we try to get help for our addiction, what happens? We get punished. We don't get supported. So nobody gets help and it becomes a even bigger problem. So I decided to write my book, Free Refills, to try to get more attention to the problem and to try to get it less of a taboo sub- subject and less, uh, you know, and more publicized because, you know, people need help. Doctors are people too. They're really suffering. And, um, you know, addiction is a treatable disease. We just have to actually, you know, half the problems getting help mm-hmm. and we have to struggle. So I just want people to feel like they can get help if they're struggling. Yeah. And did you begin using painkillers, be- begin using opiates when you were in medical school, when you were a practicing physician, when did it Oh, yeah, in medical you? school. I had experimented okay. with like all drugs. I love drugs. I tried <laughs> everything. And the only drug I ever had a problem with is when I tried Vicodin, which is a prescription opiate painkiller. And it just made me so euphoric. I like spent the next 10 years trying to recreate that euphoria. And it's really interesting because in a book talk, you know, one woman said, you know, I tried Vicodin after my C-section and it didn't make me euphoric. You know, I wouldn't want to try it again. And then I remember at a physician support group meeting, one physician said, you know, I had my first drink of alcohol at age 14 and I never stopped drinking because it made me so euphoric. And alcohol doesn't make me euphoric. So I think part of it's like brain specific, sort of Mm. luck of the draw. I think some people are more susceptible to certain drugs than other people. And for me, it was just Vicodin or prescription opiates, or I guess any opiates that I was particularly susceptible to. And at the time when you started using um, this, u- using Vicodin, were you aware of how addictive it was? I mean, obviously you were in medical school. So if anyone would have really known the potential dangers of that, it, it would have been you. Um, but, but was there as much evidence or information of how highly addictive prescription painkillers were back then? Yes, there absolutely was. Though, again, this was in the um, late 1990s, so it wasn't quite as well fleshed out as it is now. But I'd have to say, you know, as a medical student, you know, I was getting great grades. I was learning tons. 
I have to say that was part of the allure. I was like, oh, this is so addictive, but I'm not going to get addicted because, you know, this can't possibly happen to me. I mean, it made it part of, made it more exciting, if anything, if anything. So you were very high functioning, like you were definitely able to keep up with your classwork and your career while still using. Oh yeah. I couldn't possibly have been more high functioning. I mean, I don't think emotionally I was high functioning. I think I was like stuffing all my feelings and problems, you know, under the rug, but uh, academically I was super high functioning. Mm -hmm. So what did it take for you to kind of hit that um, moment, that rock bottom moment to to realize that, oh, maybe this isn't working for me anymore. Maybe this is um, I, I, ch- I need to make a change or give this up. Well, um, you know, as I start my book out uh, with a scene, um, the state police and the DEA visited my office, which wasn't particularly fun. And I lost my medical license for three years. So, but even then I kept using, uh, it's really hard to get over an addiction. Um, I, I, I just had a fundamentally come to the realization that, um, opiates are like a fake happiness. They're not real happiness. And that real happiness only comes from like connecting with other people, not from like taking a drug to simulate the uh, neurotransmitters that come from like really being happy. So, you know, I really had to redo kind of reinvent my life from beginning to end. You know, I was stuck in this rehab and I had these criminal charges and like every bad thing that could happen to me, almost every bad thing was thrown at me. And it really took um, a realization that like the only way to be for me to be happy was to get these drugs out of my life, not necessarily to get all drugs out of my life. You know, I'll have like a glass of wine with dinner uh, or whatever, but to get the opiates out of my life. And that was the only way for me to become happy. And once I realized that I just did whatever it took um, to get them out of my life. And did cannabis play a role in your recovery? Absolutely. Um, I had to be uh, careful at the time um, because the medical board was completely on my case, mm-hmm. but cannabis, um, helped me, um, with the withdrawal symptoms. Um, it was much more effective than anything else. All we had back then was clonidine, which helped, but didn't help that much. And, uh, now there's like clonidine clean with wings, you know, they keep, um, coming up with like new permutations of the same old drugs. But I honestly think cannabis is the most helpful medication for um, withdrawal symptoms. Um, if you're a doctor, you're of course not allowed to do this. So um, I, you know, when I, I was only allowed to do it on my own before I started like the official drug testing uh, by the medical board, but it really did help me get off the opiates. Mm-hmm. And I know you also have a legacy in cannabis activism and your, your father was the author of Marijuana Reconsidered which was a, a really big book in terms of the legalization movement. And that was published in the early 70s. So did you grow up educated on cannabis? And was this something that was shared within your family? Was it something that you knew about, even though it was an era of prohibition? Oh, absolutely. First of all, Marijuana Reconsidered is a masterpiece. Uh, you should take a look at it. I was just reading the, the conclusion um, the other day. And it's so funny and it's so deep. It's such a great book. It was um, reviewed on the front page of the New York Times Book Review in 1971, and I could see why. It's such a great book. And um, my entire childhood had, like, cannabis activists or opponents, like, gathered together in my living room, either, like, yelling at each other and throwing things at each other or, like, peaceably sharing a joint together. It was um, a huge part of my upbringing, and that's why, um, you know, my whole life I've been involved in this issue. Um, the, the two main influences were number one, the fact that my dad was such a, um, dedicated activist for five decades for cannabis reform. And number two was the fact that my brother, um, when I was eight, he died of leukemia, but for the last year or two of his life, he used medical cannabis. Uh, my parents got it for him illegally. It was the only thing that enabled him to keep food down because he had cancer or chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting. So I actually saw with my own eyes, you know, kids pick things up, um, probably more than adults do, that medical cannabis was like so effective for him. Um, And so I went through medical school immune to all the the BS that they teach doctors about cannabis. Uh, They really need to start from scratch and throw away all the stuff they have taught doctors and like redo the curriculum um, from scratch because it's just ridiculous what they taught us. 
Um, what did you learn? Not- yeah, what did you learn when you were in medical school about cannabis? What did they teach you? And this was, um, could you tell us what year you were? Sure, I was in medical school from 1993 to 1997. And to me, and again, I knew a lot about cannabis and was pretty pro-cannabis because of my upbringing and because of what I saw with my brother. It really seemed to me like warmed over drug war propaganda. Like I couldn't believe what they were teaching us. And I went to a good medical school. I went to Boston University School of Medicine. It was like um, the top 20 medical school. It wasn't like, you know, number one, but it was a good medical school. And it really just, I couldn't believe the nonsense. They didn't teach the endocannabinoid system. They uh, really uh, focused on the harms and they get like the one sentence maybe to the hypothetical medical benefits. And, you know, what they should be teaching is the endocannabinoid system should have a huge role because that's like the control system for all the other neurotransmitter systems. And then, you know, the harms can be summarized in a paragraph or two. I mean, you know, teens shouldn't use it. You should be very careful if you're pregnant or breastfeeding and you shouldn't do it before driving. And then you should really focus on the benefits, which are, you know, numerous. I mean, there's so many conditions that you can treat with cannabis that you have such a hard time treating with other heavier pharmaceuticals. And it's just because of the war on drugs that we have such a lopsided approach in our medical education. And this really needs to change. Um, A lot of us are working on this, but it's like a huge boat that's slow to change in the water. Uh, And I think doctors need to approach this with humility and just kind of relearn a lot of what they've learned. Yeah, absolutely. And so given that you had this um, introduction to cannabis at a very young age through your brother and your your father, were you um, were you a cannabis user? And I'm wondering if you were using cannabis while you were also practicing your your opiate addiction. And I guess more generally, as a physician, I'm wondering if you've observed are are cannabis users less susceptible to opiate addiction, um, or is is that not so relevant? Does it matter? Well, I definitely uh, refrained from using cannabis until I was at least 12 years old. (laughs) (laughs) No, I used it it, um, a lot in junior high and high school, but I was, I I noticed that um, if you got good grades, you can get away with anything. Okay. So So your family was, yeah. So it was just acceptable in your home to just- Well, no, my parents didn't really know. I snuck around. Uh, My dad had this thing, you know, the drinking age used to be 18 in Massachusetts. So my dad's big thing was that cannabis- age should be the same age as drinking. So it was always like, you have to be 18. And we were like, but it looks like so much fun. Everybody's, you know, and I grew up with like Ellen Ginsberg and Carl Sagan and everybody else, like smoking in my living room. It just looked like fun. So of course oh, we were yeah, going to smoke. Absolutely. So we just stuck around a lot, but I always made sure to get like straight A's. Like I never didn't get an A in anything. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I did that, at least in my family, I'd be invisible. So no one really paid much attention to what we were doing because uh, we had good grades. So I figured that was like the invisibility cloak, at least in our household. Um, So I always did well in school, but we always smoked a lot, you know, on the weekends, not during school or anything. Um, And um, I, you know, I think my dad had it right when he kind of described it as an enhancer, like people who are unmotivated, it can make them less, even less motivated. And people who are super motivated, it can make them even more motivated. And I certainly saw that in our living room. These were like super motivated people. These weren't like slackers. And I always found it had a really motivating effect on me. Like I wanted to be like these people in our living room, like the Carl Sagan's and the people who were like reading and writing books. These were like an intellectual who's who. And I wanted to be like that. I found it like so motivating. Um, And I never thought the cannabis had any impact one way or another on whether or not I used other drugs. Um, I never liked alcohol. And I wonder if the cannabis kind of contributed to my distaste for alcohol. Like I might have a beer at a barbecue, but that's it. Like I'm just not an alcohol person. So the only effect I think cannabis had on other drug use is that it cultivated a, a, a distaste for alcohol, but I don't think it really affected. I think the kind of drugs are interesting. I want to try them was like, always in me. And I don't think it was related to the cannabis. I think I've always like wanted to try psychedelics and I did in college and I wanted to try everything. And then when I was in medical school, I tried opiates because they were available. And I, you know, just was always wanted to try drugs. And then 
I got in trouble with the opiates just because I had a particular affinity with the um, with the Vicodin. But I don't think cannabis like predisposes you one way or another towards addiction. You know, the whole gateway hypothesis has been disproven like through and through. That was just government propaganda that you use cannabis. And then, you know, one puff later, you're, you know, on skid row drinking cigarettes and shooting heroin and methamphetamine. That's been completely disproven. If anything, it's a gateway off of opiate addiction. And, And I found in my patients, some of them, a gateway off of alcohol addiction as well. So the gateway theory is like, actually might be true, but it might be a gateway off of addiction, not onto addiction. Right. Actually, I I was wondering if um, it would almost be the reverse of the gateway drug hypothesis, that a person who's using cannabis might be less susceptible to opiate addiction or using opiates in general because they already have um, you you know, some sort of medicine to help control stress or anxiety or pain, whatever that is. So, uh, right. yeah, so that, was, that was kind of my, yeah, my, my reasoning behind that, that question. Right. If opiate use is a drug, is a disease of despair. And if people are using opiates because they're miserable and they're self-medicating their untreated anxiety and depression, cannabis could be a substitute for the opiate and give them the euphoria that they're craving. So they don't need the opiates. Yeah. That's an interesting theory. Or you could say that because opiates give you a stronger boost of euphoria and do a better job of blocking out reality. Maybe, you know, okay. That's interesting theory. I think about that. Yeah. But, but, and I've just personally, how would you differentiate that first experience that you had with Vicodin versus an experience with cannabis? Well, Vicodin may be euphoric, but in a sort of selfish way, like I just wanted to feel better. Whereas cannabis is so much more like other person centered. It like connects people. It like cannabis you do with people. You, it's like, I just remember like, you know, in my younger days, it would always be something you do at college with your friends. You go on an adventure together. You'd like smoke a joint and then go to a concert. Whereas the whole goal of opiates was to like get high and close your eyes. It just is something like, fundamentally selfish about the opiate high whereas the cannabis high there was something fundamentally like connected and communal about it so i just think that you know i was talking in an earlier podcast today about an elderly woman who managed to transition from opiates to cannabis and she quote unquote got her life back and you hear that so many times with people uh who get off opiates and get onto cannabis instead they get their life back and I can't help but wonder if that has to do with the fact that opiates are so solitary and miserable and cannabis facilitates or allows you to connect with other people. So if you're asking me to compare and contrast, I think the hugest difference is that one, the opiates are fundamentally like solitary and selfish and the cannabis is is fundamentally, in my humble opinion, um, an interconnected process. Right. And and could you share more about how maybe they, um, cannabis or, or opiates, they attach to different receptors or how they affect the brain differently? Um, and, and why, you know, that, that might explain why this actual experience is so different. Well, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> uh, the opiates, you know, I've hit the, you know, the different opiate receptors, the mu, the kappa, there are several different opiate receptors. And, um, you know, the cannabinoids hit the the different cannabinoid receptors and um, how they affect behavior is too complicated to explain. I don't even know if I understand how the opiates affect behavior versus how cannabis affects behavior. Behavior is so complicated. I was a philosophy major in college with like minors in like, you know, psychology and religion um, to try to understand exactly this. And then you know, I became a doctor. I was torn between being a psychiatrist and being a primary care doctor. And I thought I'd be a primary care doctor because you could be a psychiatrist and you could do everything else. And I think, you know, I understand a lot about human behavior by being a primary care doctor for 25 years. You see everything. It's like being in a Charles Dickens novel for 25 years. Um, and human behavior still sort of mystifies me. And how to explain how a particular drug affects behavior versus how another drug affects behavior is, it's a very complicated question. 
I mean, opiates just um, affect primarily your reward center, your dopamine. They say that a good meal gives you like 50 units of dopamine and having sex gives you a hundred units of dopamine. I guess it depends who you're having sex with, but, and then, you know, um, taking an opiate's like a thousand units. It just like hijacks your brain. I mean, it's a little simplistic and schematic, but so it just circumvents all the other things in your life, like saying hello to someone or getting a hug. You can get much more of that fundamental reward by taking the opiate. So, um, that's why it's sort of selfish. Like I don't need to talk to you or to hug you or to go for a walk with you. I can get that same neurotrans, that same happiness by just taking a pill. Whereas the cannabinoids do work on the dopamine receptors and they do give you euphoria, but they don't flood you with euphoria like the opiates do. They also work on a whole variety of neurotransmitter systems and they're 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 spread throughout the brain and they affect your cognition and they affect the connections between the brain and they affect emotional processing and the amygdala and how you process emotions and i think that they they um they heighten um your sensations and they heighten your feelings so i think if anything they make it um more pleasurable to connect with other people and they don't just give you selfish, solitary pleasure. They give you pleasure more than usual from connecting with other people or from playing music with someone or from doing a group activity. So I think they're actually like the opposite. Uh, you know, no one's ever asked me this before. And I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but it actually is the opposite in a sense. So I think that, um, again, this goes back to what I just said before. People do get their lives back when they transition from from opiates to cannabis. And I think a lot of it's because people are withering and dying of loneliness, especially elderly people. I see that in my practice every day. And I think cannabis is so much more facilitative of, of interaction than, than opiates. And it's for the reasons that we just discussed. Yeah. I think that's a really, that's a really interesting answer because it, it, it sounds like these opiates in a way, they allow us to experience that, that rush of dopamine without any um, of the risks or the fear of vulnerability that comes with real connection. Right. You don't need anybody else to be happy. Like yeah. you can just be happy with a pile of pills. Like I just look at myself during my addiction. I'd be perfectly happy to be alone in my office at one in the morning snorting oxycodone. Now, how depressing is that? <laughs> Whereas right. like you wouldn't but be, you wouldn't be happy to like be alone in your office, smoking a joint by yourself, you'd be bored to death. You'd be like, where is everybody? Where's the party? Where are my friends? You know, what's or happening? You might, I mean, you might, I think cannabis can be used in a, in a solitary way, but probably not a yeah. lot of office, like maybe out in nature or maybe listening to music, like, because there are many ways to experience connection in the world beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. Humans. And I was, I was oversimplifying. You're absolutely right. But I'm saying like, that wouldn't, but I'm saying like, you'd always be happy to do that with oxycodone. Right, right. And, and I think that's so important as humans because there is a lot of fear when it comes to putting ourselves, you know, trying to connect with other people or there, there is a risk there and there's no risk of rejection when you're alone with your pills. So I think that can be maybe the enticing factor um, of, of opiates over, over cannabis. Right, you reliably get that huge reward and nobody can reject you. You're absolutely right. Um, and it's it's much simpler. It's like the caveman. You just get your reward and then you you snort up again or shoot up again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. And I, and I wonder too how society and culture kind of encourages that. Um, but that might be that might be a different a different conversation. Well, it's really it is really interesting that I mean this this might be another conversation that. Society has put so much effort in the last 80 years in promoting alcohol and so much effort into promote into suppressing cannabis. Whereas, you know, alcohol, I mean, not to make it vague generalization, but alcohol does sort of dumb people down. I don't know if you've, it's not that much fun to be at a party where everybody's drinking and you're not. Oh, um, no, definitely not. But then cannabis sort of like makes people more expansive and creative and it just bizarre that our society is like really targeted one drug and the one drug that makes people more creative and has clamped up, you know, 
clamp down on the drug that makes you more creative and has really sort of um, fostered the drug that makes people sort of more boorish and narrow-minded. Yeah, it, it, it is very, it is very depressing. <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting to some extent, but yeah, I think the more, the more I'm learning about cannabis as medicine and, and psychedelics in general, it's wow, there are so many naturally occurring plants and molecules on this planet to help us connect and, and live in a more interesting and creative and fulfilling way. And it is really unfortunate that we've been cut off from them for so long. Yeah. I have no idea why psychedelics are illegal. Um, my dad actually wrote a book in 1979 called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, um, calling for psychedelics to be taken out of the street and brought into the laboratory because he thought they had um, huge potential in psychiatry. So he was very ahead of his time on psychedelics as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think psychedelics can play such a role in um, addiction recovery as well. But but let's focus on, on cannabis for the time being. And I'm wondering from your perspective as a physician, um, how can cannabis play a role in in recovery and how does it work? So what particular compounds, whether it's THC or CBD or um, the terpenes, can be responsible for, for um, these effects? And at what phase in the withdrawal or the detox process should cannabis be introduced? So I know with, uh, especially when someone's recovering from opiate addiction, it's really important to um, have a tapering process and utilize either methadone or suboxone or um, you know, some medications. So is cannabis a, a substitute for those or, or when should it be introduced? Could you just walk us through what, what that process would look like in, in an ideal recovery oh, sure. process? Well, first of all, cannabis helps people not get addicted in the first place because we use it instead of opiates for chronic pain. And second of all, um, we can get people off opiates for chronic pain by using cannabis. And third of all, um, there's some evidence that cannabis helps people who are on buprenorphine um, or methadone stay in the treatment process. Um, And fourth of all, um, cannabis has been shown anecdotally, and there's a couple of studies that it's very helpful for withdrawal symptoms. Um, The fifth use, which you just asked about, like, is it a substitute for buprenorphine or methadone? That's where I don't recommend it yet. Um, you know, thousands of people anecdotally claim, you know, cannabis got me off heroin. And, you know, so many people claim to have used cannabis for this purpose. The only problem is there isn't hard evidence yet um, that cannabis has lowered overdoses or deaths. And with both buprenorphine and methadone, we do have hard evidence that they have lowered overdoses and deaths with both prescription opiates and with heroin. So if you're a doctor, you're obviously going to recommend the thing that has the evidence behind it. So I right now recommend cannabis as an adjunct to buprenorphine or methadone. I don't recommend it as medication for opiate use disorder. I recommend it as an adjunct for medi- for medications for opiate use disorder, just because the studies haven't been done yet and there isn't the evidence. Mm-hmm. You'd feel really bad if someone overdosed and you said use cannabis to get off heroin and you didn't say use buprenorphine, which I prescribe all the time in my clinical practice. And, you know, you did that that instead of buprenorphine and there just isn't the evidence. So I don't use it for that fifth uh, purpose. Um, I know other people do, and I know that that's very controversial. Um, It's mostly controversial among the addiction psychiatrists. And I do think they have a legitimate point that the evidence isn't there. So why not stick you know, given that opiate use disorder is a deadly disease, why not stick with the, until there's data, why not stick with the buprenorphine and the methadone? But in terms of your other question, you actually asked about five questions. Back I know, right? Let me uh, break it down more. <laughs> but, um, in terms of your other question, um, I think that when you're treating someone with buprenorphine or methadone, um, I'm really skeptical about whether you should even be drug testing them at all. Our society is so drug testing happy. It's a whole cottage industry. A lot of this came from Robert DuPont, that um, drug warrior who used to be the head of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is part of why they're so drug testing happy and why they're so anti-cannabis. But they certainly shouldn't be testing people who are getting methadone or who are getting um, buprenorphine or 
who are getting uh, pain medication for cannabis. And they certainly shouldn't be kicking people off for using cannabis. That is criminal. That is absolutely awful. So I don't think we should even be testing for cannabis anywhere in the hospitals or in the rehab places or in the methadone clinics. So, but, so right now we're at the point where a lot of people get kicked off for using cannabis, which is really awful. So we're not quite at the point yet where we talk about how to best use cannabis. Unfortunately, we're trying to keep people from getting kicked out of the programs using cannabis, which is totally back backwards. But assuming a perfect world where we're not kicking people out of the programs for using cannabis, um, I think that people should be allowed to use cannabis as it helps them. Because if they're having withdrawal symptoms, they should be allowed to use cannabis and self-titrate it uh, to their withdrawal symptoms. And I don't think that would increase their chances of relapsing. I don't think, you know, the evidence is it doesn't increase their dropout from buprenorphine programs. If anything, it increases their retention in buprenorphine programs. And as I mentioned, the evidence is it helps. It's really effective with withdrawal symptoms. So I don't think there's like a fixed regimen that everybody's adopted. I think people should just be allowed to self-titrate the cannabis and they shouldn't be penalized for using it. And given that it increases retention and certainly doesn't increase dropout and provides symptomatic relief, only good things will happen when you start doing that. Mm-hmm. And in a typical you know, recovery program, how long is the patient using methadone or? Well, how about methadone people usually stay on oh, okay. um, and the same with buprenorphine. Now buprenorphine, there's a phil- which is also suboxone. Um, there's a philosophical discussion of whether it should be temporary or permanent. Um, you know, some people argue it should be permanent. Like your brain chemicals are off. This replaces them. This stables, stabilizes them. You should just stay on it forever. Or, yeah. Or other people argue that, you know, this is a transitional period, let's taper you off, and then you don't have to be on a medication every day. You know, why don't we taper you off over like six months? But people tend to relapse when you taper them off the buprenorphine and the methadone. So most people that I'm aware of tend to just stay on them. And, you know, we look at buprenorphine at our hospital, like if, it, if a diabetic's on insulin, they're not addicted to the insulin. And we don't try to withdraw the insulin. We just keep them on the insulin because they have a disease. And if they have the disease of opiate addiction, you just keep them on buprenorphine. You should see these people. You'd have no idea they had been addicted to opiates. They're working. They have happy families. They're healthy. They're coming to appointments. You wouldn't have the slightest idea that they struggled with opiate addiction. So people are incredibly stabilized and um, their lives are normalized on the buprenorphine. So it's hard to make an argument to force them to taper off unless they want to, which is really the minority of patients. If they are living a healthy life and they're just on a medication that doesn't really impair them, um, you know, because they have tolerance to it. So I would say most people tend to stay on the buprenorphine, but there is a lot of argument about like hypothetically whether people should stay on it forever or whether they should taper off. But in reality, I think most people stay on it. Are there any side effects to being on those medications permanently? Well, you get tolerance and I mean, methadone, I think can be very constipating. Um, Buprenorphine, I think gives you a little buzz. It makes, I mean, I've tried all these things, but not recently. Buprenorphine gives you a little buzz and kind of feels like a cup of coffee. But I think um, aside from the constipation and methadone could be sedating, um, and buprenorphine can be a little activating, but I think generally speaking, once you've been on them for a while, your body really gets used to them and people hold jobs. They have, as I mentioned, they have normal family lives. Um, you know, especially the buprenorphine that I've seen, you'd have no idea that these people are on buprenorphine and you'd have no idea that they struggle with opiate addiction. Um, you know, there's a big fight, um, which I was sort of part of too, um, about a year ago because, it came to light in a New England Journal of Medicine article that some colleagues of mine wrote that the physician health programs were not offering it buprenorphine to doctors because they thought it was impairing. But, you know, of course, doctors are allowed to drink alcohol and to be on gabapentin and to take Valium and to be on muscle relaxers and take everything else. But just because it's addiction, 
they were not allowed to be on buprenorphine. It was so stigmatizing. And like, why would you not let the doctors have the one life-saving medication for addiction? So I got involved in that and I came up very heavily against the medical boards and the physician health programs for denying this treatment. And their argument was, well, it could be impairing for the doctors, but we were like, so could these other 18 medications that you allow doctors to take. You're just picking on this because it's addiction. So now they're at least smart enough to not say that they don't allow doctors to take buprenorphine, but who knows that they actually give doctors, allow doctors to take buprenorphine, but there's so much stigma with addiction that, you know, some employers would have a really hard time if they found out that people were on buprenorphine, um, which is really unfortunate because again, these people have such, you know, have regained their lives and are doing so well, they should be allowed to have a second chance like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There does seem to be so much stigma around addiction and especially within physicians. I think sometimes our culture just puts physicians on such a pedestal. Uh, yeah, that pedestal kills people. We have the highest suicide rate of any profession, mm-hmm. especially female physicians. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah, that's devastating to hear. Um, so, so going back to to the first part of my question, um, how, how does cannabis um, reduce dependency on opiates? And yeah, do you have theories, or do you know about research that suggests or indicates what particular compounds within the plant are responsible for this effect? Well, um, I have theories. Um, I don't actually know because I don't think it's worked out yet. Um, one theory is that. Cannabis and opiates kind of co-work on the same receptors. So I wonder if the cannabis kind of de facto works as sort of a taper and provides some of the sort of stabilizing euphoria that the opiates provided so you don't feel the horrible withdrawal that you feel. Um, Two... And if I, I can just pause you there, and that is assuming that the patient is utilizing um, a tapering drug as well, or, or just using nothing. Well, like, do you still you know feel terrible with? Way, I mean, particularly so if they, particularly so if they're using nothing, but also okay. if they're using a, a tapering drug. Okay. But two, cannabis is just really good at treating those symptoms. Um, what do you feel when you're withdrawing from opiates? Unfortunately, I know a lot about this. You feel this anxiety and restlessness, you feel nausea, you feel stomach cramping, you feel depression, you have headaches, you feel fatigue, and you feel malaise. And those are all things that individually and kind of synergistically cannabis is good at treating. And cannabis just makes you feel better. So you, instead of feeling like you want to die, you feel halfway like you want to die if you use cannabis and you were drawing from opiates. It's sort of like um, it sort of like makes you feel better, not as good as the opiates make you feel, but it makes you feel better than the wretched feeling you'd have if you didn't use anything. So it sort of fills in the gap. So part of it's that they work on co-work on the same receptors. So I wonder if it's sort of like being on the taper. And part of it's that cannabis is just very good individually at treating these individual symptoms. So you're actually treating the symptoms much better than clonidine. What does clonidine treat? Clonidine treats like it's a blood pressure medication. It treats heart rate um, and anxiety, but cannabis treats all of those symptoms. So of course, cannabis is going to be much better than clonidine uh, for the nausea, the stomach cramping, the anxiety, the malaise. Um, And then the third thing is that CBD is very good for cravings. They've studied that um, across a lot of different addictions, it's specifically in humans with opiates and uh, cue-induced cravings, but also with like nicotine in animals with nicotine and or in humans with nicotine and in animals with a bunch of other drugs. And I think that if that CBD could be very helpful with the cravings part of it, because the cravings are a huge part of withdrawal. You crave it like there's no tomorrow. And you dream about it. Like I had so many dreams about opiates and I'd wake up feeling guilty and having used in my dreams. So I think CBD can really help the part of the brain that works on cravings. How CBD does that, 
I'm not quite sure. They don't even know exactly how CBD works. So how it works specifically on cravings, I'm not going to try to flesh out. Um, but so those are three different ways in which I think that cannabis and cannabinoids can be really helpful um, in alleviating withdrawal symptoms. I'm really excited to see how this pans out. And I wouldn't be surprised if in five to 10 years, it wasn't just suboxone or buprenorphine and methadone or buprenorphine, methadone, and cannabis as the three medications for opiate use disorder. But again, we're not quite there yet for cannabis as a substitute for methadone or for buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And how would you recommend to a patient who is tapering off of opiates to utilize cannabis? Is it do you, uh, is does the route of administration matter? Um, do you have any recommendations in terms of what kind of product they should look for? What you know, a high concentration of um, certain like a CBD, for instance. What, what kind of recommendations would would you make? Um, well, first of all, many of them are already using cannabis. This question is like, are they going to be open with their doctor or not? <laughs> right. Um, you know, and they tend to be open with me because I'm not like, you know, a lot of doctors are very snooty and dismissive around cannabis. And the only consequence of that is that their doctors just don't tell them about it, mm-hmm. which is the worst case scenario for everybody involved. So I think it's it's high time that the doctors ditch the uh, snooty and dismissive attitude because it doesn't help anybody. Um, but, you know, and if a patient isn't using cannabis, you know, I, and they're doing well, I wouldn't necessarily tell them to start using cannabis because, you know, you don't necessarily want to complicate things, you know, and if they're already doing well. But I would say most of these patients have used or are using cannabis already. And then I would just see what they're doing and um, guide them. And, you know, a lot of them are smoking cigarettes too. So it's not... Um, you know, I would certainly advise high CBD, uh, higher CBD strains, because I think that really helps with the cravings. And I would um, just ask them how it's going with the withdrawal symptoms and just see when they're having cravings, see when they're having withdrawal symptoms and discuss how they're taking it. They almost always smoke it. And, you know, I could discuss with them the possibility of a small dose of an edible because that's like long acting medication versus short acting. You know, for example, if they wake up in the middle of the night, with cravings or withdrawal symptoms, it would make sense to take a small dose of an edible before you go to sleep rather than waking up and reaching for the vaporizer because, you know, it wears off if you smoke it in a couple hours. So I would definitely discuss with them ways in which they can make themselves more comfortable. And what do you think about utilizing cannabis to treat other types of addiction, um, maybe alcohol addiction or using it as therapy for um, even non-physiological addictions or OCD? Do, do you think there is any like enough research or evidence to kind of start pointing towards cannabis as, as use in addiction therapy in general beyond opiates? Well, I was just reading an article um, about OCD when... Um, we started this podcast. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, for alcohol, absolutely. I know a lot of people that have gotten off alcohol with cannabis. Um, they substitute it. They actually find that cannabis is a much more interesting drug. And then they also find that their liver enzymes come back to normal and their, uh, you know, marriage stops falling apart. And, you know, they have a lot more energy to do the things that they enjoy. And they're like, wow, I wish I discovered this 20 years ago. So I think cannabis has tremendous potential um, in helping people with alcohol. It also, you know, it's really interesting. Like it also helps people process some of the emotions that are sort of underlying the alcohol consumption in the first place. Like I have one veteran that I'm taking care of that used to treat his PTSD with like seven shots of vodka twice a day. And now he treats it with like one puff twice a day. And he just finds that the cannabis helps him process his emotions and the alcohol was just numbing him. And I hear that story a lot. It's not just that it's like the alcohol was sort of a symptom and the underlying emotions of the problem and that people find the cannabis helps them process the underlying emotions. And then that's what helps them not only get off the alcohol, but also uh, move through whatever was holding them back in the first place. I think PTSD is, a huge reason why a lot of people drink. And I think cannabis has a lot of potential to treat PTSD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how do you think uh, in the current kind of 
state of addiction therapy in the U.S. or across the world, how do you think cannabis is being received? You know, and maybe among communities like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcohol Anonymous, like these huge communities, um, is cannabis an accepted part of that protocol at this point? Or well, no, uh, cannabis is like uh, the enemy to these communities. Oh, okay. They're so anti-cannabis. <laughs> yeah, they are so yeah. To accept it. Part of it is that um, the, the addiction community is is very anti-cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, from all the way up from the addiction psychiatrists to the addiction counselors to the people in these recovery groups, they are just completely against it. And that's a whole nother conversation. Why that's the case. Um, you know, it's starting to crack as more and more people have like family members that use medical cannabis successfully it's very hard to maintain your anti-cannabis but there's just been so much like internalized drug war propaganda and like you know a big group is like partnership for drug-free kids and that came from partnership for drug-free america which gave us all those crazy this is your brain on drugs like and all these anti-marijuana ads there's so much like institutional and internalized drug war propaganda in these communities that and, you know, I went to rehab and they, you know, I went to Talbot rehab for a week and Doug Talbot, the head of it was there. And I couldn't help saying, you know, so you think cannabis is as bad as methamphetamine and Doug Talbot, this famous addictionologist, who I think was also the head of the American society of addiction medicine was like, yes, a drug is a drug is a drug. And I just like rolled my eyes. I'm like, how could this like revered addiction specialist honestly think that Cannabis is the same thing as methamphetamine. They're just, they've got this ideology, a lot of which goes straight back to like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1937. And a lot of the addiction groups and the addiction, the rehab centers are just like immune to science and immune to learning. And Mm -hmm. the problem is there's like these two realities now. There's like the modern reality of cannabis that we've been talking about. And then there's this huge treat treatment industrial complex, which is totally cut off from it. So um, somehow we've got to bridge these two communities. Um, I forget who said this. It was someone like Sinclair Lewis um, said that it's very hard to get, you know, someone to understand something when his income, his or her income depends on understanding the opposite, you know, and they're still treating a lot of like cannabis addiction and cannabis use disorder. And they're still admitting a lot of people that the courts send them for cannabis charges in the states where it's illegal. So as long as they're making, you know, it's a cash cow treating these court-referred cannabis addictions, quote-unquote, um, they're never going to be on board. So, you know, I think legalization's got to happen before they change their minds on this. But it's a very complicated problem with, like, a lot of internalized, I think, a lot of internalized propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sounds like there's a lot of rigidity to and rejection of new ideas or you know oh yeah in my book i i sort of spend about 50 pages making fun of my experience at rehab (laughs) repeat these platitudes over and over these slightly platitudes over and over again and somehow that's supposed to lead to recovery from opiate addiction it was literally the most mindless thing i've done in my 54 years is Mm -hmm. go to rehab i mean it was literally the dumbest thing i've ever done Mm -hmm. i can't believe they made me do that um, and, but it gave me a lot of insight into how woefully lacking our addiction treatment um, system is. I mean, they yeah. don't give medicines, they just make you repeat platitudes and they charge a ton of money. It's absolutely ridiculous. It needs to be disbanded completely and, and start started from scratch. Yeah, and it, it's almost, I found it, at least with a lot of these addiction communities, is it's almost just replacing one god for another. So instead of introducing that neuroplasticity that I think cannabis and psychedelics can be really useful for and helping someone get off of that, you know, that same neural circuit over and over again, you're just replacing the neural circuit with, with something else to worship. So so I, I, I think cannabis does allow us to kind of, and this is just my opinion, this is not... Well, no, I agree. The way I put it is that, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And so they want to be yeah. rid of opiates. So they sent me to this religious rehab program. It's like right. just replacing one opiate with another. It's absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And that you have to accept a higher power. And um, yeah, so so I do. I just believe cannabis has so much, and, and psychedelics in general just has so much potential in 
uh, yeah, like getting us into our brain so we can find find our own truth versus um, just taking someone else's dogma. Exactly. Yeah, so so that actually segues really nicely to um, my next question, which is about cannabis dependency or cannabis withdrawal symptoms. And on the Harvard Medical blog, you wrote a new definition for cannabis dependency, which I really appreciated. Um, you said persistent use despite negative consequences. So I, I, I thought this was just such a really a good way to start having more nuanced conversations on this topic um, and, and to get out of that really, you know, rigid, dogmatic addiction therapy, you know, addiction, like definition of addiction or definition on dependency. So could you elaborate kind of more on this topic, on, on what cannabis dependency or might look like and um, yeah, what you might, inter- what you might suggest to someone if, if they came, came to you. As Absolutely. These well, symptoms. these addiction specialists quote these numbers about cannabis addiction that are like so outdated and they have this schemata for cannabis use disorder that seems to rope in most people that use medical cannabis. And I just thought it was ridiculous that, you know, people are happily using medical cannabis and at the same time, the, you know, addiction people think that they have a use disorder and like both realities can't be true. So, um, and then having been through opiate addiction and having been someone who, you know, has single-handedly smoked several, you know, acres of cannabis in my lifetime, I know that, you know, cannabis addiction is not opiate addiction. It just doesn't hijack your brain the way opiates do. It, it, like, you shouldn't even use the same word. It seems like an abuse of that word. Um, I mean, maybe in very rare circumstances it does, but the euphoria is not the same thing. It just it's not a cannabis addiction. Isn't the same thing as an opiate addiction in most cases. It's more like a dependency. Um, certainly I've had patients that have had a really hard time stopping it. Um, you know, for example, you know, I do have a patient who, you know, we don't know if he has cannabis hyperemesis and I just want him to stop smoking for six months because he keeps ending up in the emergency room barfing. And the only way for us to tell if he has cannabis hyperemesis versus cyclic vomiting is to stop smoking for six months. What is uh, cannabis hyperemesis? Oh, that's when you, it's when you, it's a vomiting syndrome related to frequent cannabis use that used to be underdiagnosed and now is overdiagnosed. It's a very trendy diagnosis. Now, if you're vomiting for no reason and you use cannabis in the emergency room, they'll give you a diagnosis of cannabis hyperemesis. It's thought to be in the same way that cannabis relieves nausea. Now, if you chronically overstimulate the receptor, it can actually cause nausea and vomiting. But there's also a syndrome called cyclic vomiting, which just means you vomit once in a while really severely for no reason. And the only way to distinguish cyclic vomiting from cannabis hyperemesis is to stop smoking for like six months, stop using cannabis for six months and see if the vomiting goes away. It's literally the only way to distinguish it. So I have a patient who I said, you have to stop smoking for six months. I'm not anti-cannabis, but as your primary care doctor, you just got to stop for six months because otherwise we don't know why you're vomiting. And you'd think that you'd be able to stop for six months if it were that important. And if you're basically pro-cannabis doctor asked you to stop for six months, and this is someone who couldn't stop. Now, I think that's someone who is continued using despite negative consequences. Like he'd end up in the hospital for like three days at a time on IVs, like once a month. Like that's a really big deal. So I think some people do get, uh, I don't know if you want to call it dependent or addicted with a small A. People don't like rob pharmacies at gunpoint like they do for opiates. You know, it's not addictive in that sense. So I, I just think it's in sort of a different category, but Certainly, we've all seen people who sort of smoke their lives away. And, you know, um, it, it is a euphoria. Um, and p- people can use it um, way too much. All of us have seen that. So I think that people say that it's not addictive or sort of missing the point. And, and the addiction specialists who say, oh, it's addictive in 9% of people, according to the study from... 1994, which was funded by the drug war and it's addictive in 30% of adolescents. Like they don't, none of this is even remotely true. So I think we've got to, this has to do with what I was talking about before. We've got to like wipe the slate clean 
throw away most of the studies that were funded by the drug war, throw away all of the gotcha studies that were funded just to make cannabis look bad by the U.S. government, start from scratch, get people who are neutral. Um, I consider myself to be among them and just say how addictive slash dependency producing is it? Let's do some studies. Let's come up with some reasonable guidelines and let's educate our youth accordingly. Because the one thing we know is that if you lie to the youth, to the teenagers, they're not going to believe you. That's where dare the dare program went wrong. They said cannabis, if you take a puff of cannabis, your legs will fall off and heroin's bad and alcohol's bad. And then the kids smoke cannabis and nothing bad happened. And then they disregarded the message about heroin and about alcohol. So you can't lie to teenagers. It's like the worst thing you could do. So I think we need to like, you know, really, again, just like come up with the truth about cannabis and come up with something everybody can agree with. And part of that's going to involve getting rid of a lot of what we know isn't true, including a lot of this uh, nonsense about how addictive it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in terms of someone who does want to cut back on their cannabis use um, or, or quit, do you have um, suggestions? Do you recommend like a tapering program or? What is the best way to kind of manage that? I mean, if you use cannabis every day, for mm-hmm. example, your cannabinoid receptors, your natural receptors for cannabis downregulate, they become more sparse because you're constantly bombarding them. So if you were to start stop abruptly, you'd feel grumpy and have trouble sleeping. You know, I, I don't know why people deny that there's a withdrawal syndrome to stopping cannabis. You know, it doesn't affect everybody, but it's just natural. Just like there's a withdrawal syndrome for SSRIs or... Or even sugar or caffeine. Like I think sometimes, yeah. And I really appreciate this conversation because I think we need to have just... More, more, more nuanced conversations about um, dependency on things, and uh, you make a great point. Like people don't rob a pharmacy for <laughs> a, a cannabis dependency or a sugar dependency, but but these could still create problematic behaviors in someone's lives. Exactly, and it, it just makes sense that you'd have withdrawal if your neuro, your receptors are used to getting it every day, and then you stop giving it every day. It makes mm-hmm. sense they'd be looking for it. And you'd be grumpy and have trouble sleeping. It's not like you jump off a cliff because you're grumpy and have trouble sleeping, but you'd be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So certainly it'd be more comfortable if you taper. If you can't taper, say you got a new job, it's for the federal government, they're drug testing you, you have to stop. Um, see, I think CBD um, can be really helpful in cannabis withdrawal um, with the cravings and with some of the withdrawal symptoms. Uh, there's some preliminary data to this and I've tried it with some patients and they found it quite helpful as well. So my best recommendation um, is to try high dose CBD. Of course, if you're getting drug tested, which was my um, made up example, you have to be very careful because that could tip the drug test. But if you have to cut, cut back, um, I would try high doses of CBD. If you have to cut back abruptly, if you have to cut back gradually, just taper yourself off like you do anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I have one final question for you before we wrap up here, but w- what are you most excited about um, in terms of cannabis research or um, work in your cl- clinical practice going forward? What, what, what do you most want to learn about cannabis and what do you want to see kind of uh, the future of cannabis look like, and especially, you know, when it comes to this conversation that we're having on addiction therapy. Oh, well, there's so much that I'm excited about. So that's an unfair question. But, <laughs> um, I think we're just understanding the tip of the iceberg about the endocannabinoid system. And we're just learning about a few of the new cannabinoids and what they really do. And there's so many that we're going to be learning about. and. Um, it's just going to be astounding once we once we elucidate more of this system. You know, turn this up, turn this down. You know, control inflammation, uh, control pain, control hunger, control blood sugar. I mean, I'm a primary care physician, so I'm used to dealing with like the whole body and all the body's problems, the mind, the body. I think it's just going to be 
unbelievable, like phenomenal, just extraordinary what we're going to be able to do with cannabis medicine, not just for addiction, but for everything that I deal with in a day to day as a, as a general doctor. Like there are so many problems that people struggle with from fibromyalgia to migraines to just being unable to lose weight to diabetes. And I think that virtually all of these are going to be able to be uh, greatly um, facilitated by a better understanding of the endocannabinoid system. I just think it controls all the other systems. And as we develop drugs, as we learn more about the different cannabinoids, as we can, again, tinker, turn this up, turn this down, THCV, control the blood sugar. I think it's just going to be astounding in 10 years what we're able to do. And I can't wait to be part of it. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Grinsman. I really appreciate uh, you sharing all of your, your insight and your, um, your personal journey with us. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the great conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.